and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where I'm marking the 80th anniversary of the Battle of Hong Kong. Imperial Japan conducted airstrikes on the naval base at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii on the 7th of December 1941, US time, which would result in America formally entering the Second World War the following day. On the morning of the 8th of December Hong Kong time, a garrison of Japanese soldiers that had been moving south through mainland China marched over the border into the new territories. Aerial strikes were also conducted on Hong Kong. To mark the 80th anniversary, two Second World War-related associations and consular representatives from Canada and Britain held a commemoration ceremony at the Garden of Remembrance at City Hall in Central on Wednesday morning. The Royal Hong Kong Regiment, the Volunteers Association and the Hong Kong Prisoners of War Association representatives laid a series of wreaths of poppies alongside the representatives from the consulates. Trumpeter and music teacher Mark Willett played the last post and the bagpiper was Wong Hugh Kay, a project officer at the Hong Kong Adventure Corps, which is the youth wing that was created after the handover to continue on the spirit of the volunteers. The 17-day Battle of Hong Kong was fought to defend a territory of 1.6 million people. The Hong Kong garrison of 13,500 men consisted of British, Indian, Canadian and local troops, which faced around 35,000 Japanese forces. Some men with the British military had been soldiers for years. Others were teenagers from Canada, some of whom had barely seen any training. There were Hong Kong Chinese, Portuguese, Eurasian, Indian, British, Danish, white Russian men, among other nationalities of the Hong Kong Volunteer Defence Corps. The odds were against them, and after the Japanese forces came down the main artery of the Wong Nai Chung Gap on Hong Kong Island, the battle was largely won, and Hong Kong surrendered on December the 25th. Hong Kong would be occupied for the following three years and eight months. For Ron Taylor of the Hong Kong Regiment, the Volunteers Association, it's important to remember what happened 80 years ago. I believe that this anniversary is very important for Hong Kong, not so much the older generation who's perhaps seen previous anniversaries, but for our younger generation. 
they've very fortunately never had to experience what Hong Kong went through 80 years ago. I hope they never will have to experience it. But it's, it's only right that they should know what happened so that when they make decisions in the future, they can make sure that the atrocities which happened for 80 years ago are not repeated now. So it's all a, a really a matter of history, a matter of education. We're doing this really to remember our forebearers who fought. And I think we have a, a duty to them that we do remember them and we don't forget what they did. This is a very simple ceremony and a number of wreaths being laid, that's about all. But it, it is significant. Uh, we have made an effort and hopefully it will be remembered by uh, generations to come that this was a significant anniversary and for us all to remember 80 years ago. I'm Justin Ho. I'm currently a PhD student at Peking University studying ceramic archaeology. I'm also a descendant of the volunteers because my, to, to be precise, my step-grandfather and step-granduncle took part in the Battle of Hong Kong. My step-grandfather was a gunner of the volunteers' 5th anti-aircraft battery, while my granduncle was a driver, and a private to be precise, of the volunteers' ambulance unit. Can you give me their names? Certainly. My step-grandfather is Chiang Li Hai, and my step-granduncle is Chiang Li Hin. So where was your grandfather during the Battle of Hong Kong? He was stationed around Saiwan and around Stanley. His case was unique and uh, very fortunate of him because on the 18th, yes, on the afternoon of the 18th, he was rotated from Taiwan. So the 18th of December? The 18th of December, 1941. He was rotated from Taiwan Battery to Rosalie Stanley. This was uh, important and lucky of him. Had he been in the next shift, he would not have survived because that that night, the Japanese made a surprise landing and took the whole Taiwan battery by surprise and later massacred the 50-strong battery to the point of only three were fortunate enough to survive, escape and tell the story of such atrocity. What happened to your grandfather and great-uncle? Uh, when Hong Kong fell, my grandfather was fortunate enough to ditch his uniform and blend into the civilian populace. He would later join the British Army Aid Group, a resistance group against the Japanese, helping uh, local officials, students and other civilians to escape from Hong Kong. One of the biggest operations he was uh, in charge was, was escorting 23 Hong Kong University students from Hong Kong to Guangzhou. And they did it dead in the night, had a few close calls, but despite all the challenges, managed to bring all of them safely to then free China. One of, the, one of which would later write a memoir because he would, one of the students later joined the Chinese Air Composite Wing of the 14th Air Force. 
and later retired to Singapore. He wrote his memoir the,、uh, last year and detailing his escape and the help my grandfather gave him. The account can be heard of in the book、uh, "Dispersal and Renewal" about Hong Kong University students during the war, and the recent publication in Singapore, "Memoirs of a Flying Tiger." Can you tell me what happened to your great uncle? My great uncle,、uh, my grand uncle、uh, Chang Li Hin, was one of the captured. He was released in 1942 and under house arrest. In 1943. He tried to escape along with two other volunteers. From where? From most likely、uh, the, uh, Hong Kong、uh, University, in the premises of Hong Kong University. Unfortunately, he and the others were caught red-handed by the Japanese and subsequently executed. How did you know about this? Is your、uh, other family told you? Yes, I heard of this、uh, first from my father, and then later on my aunt, who provided me with my. Uh, step grandfather's medals and documentation, as long with some oral history about his recollections of the war, and from then on, I started investigating, courtesy of some of、uh, very well-versed historians and from and veterans associations who helped provided with additional information of my step grandfather and grand uncle's、uh, wartime exploits. Now,、um, when you say granduncle, what's the re- relationship to you? So it's your grandfather's brother.、Or? Yeah, grandfather's brother. He had other three other brothers. He and his brothers were studying in Hong Kong University when the war broke out. So they joined the volunteers. I've been a volunteer for、uh, say since '65.、Uh, you know, long. I joined this、uh, parade many many years since I was a private and then a sentry. And then sentry、uh, commander, so on there. In the volunteers. Yeah, volunteers. Many, many years. I respect those who gave life for us. You know, we must remember them. Yeah, that's the main thing. As long as, long as my father was also a volunteer in the in the Second World War, in Hong Kong, he was lucky. You know, he escaped on time. <laughs> so he was a he was a volunteer, volunteer. in the ba- in the Battle of Hong yes, Kong. Yes. And what was his name? Pao Pao Wah. He's a four battery. You know. But because his、uh, uh, squad leader told them, "No, we can't fight anymore. No, go, go home." <laughs> so all, all, all go away. But、uh, lucky, you know. So、yeah. where was he during the Battle of Hong Kong? Wanchai, you know, Wanchai. That that's a long time ago, you know. And did he ever talk about his experiences to you? No, no, because he then he became a sailor. He always、uh, go away, you know. No, no time when I understand he also a volunteer, you know. So、uh, no chance to talk to him. He got passed away, you know. But you、yeah. followed him. Yeah, follow him. Yeah,、yes. yeah, yeah. So you've been a volunteer since 1965. 65, yes, long,、yes. long, long time. Long. I love my regiment. Yeah. <laughs> so you must have known many of the men who yeah, yeah,、uh, survived yeah, yeah. the Battle of Hong Kong. Yeah, yes. And did yes, they、many. tell you about their experiences? Not many, not many, because I don't think they would like to talk about that. Not because it's a painful memory, you know. And 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 those survive, like the Colonel Oswald Jung or.、Uh, Oh, also Jiang was yes, also Jiang, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the long time Peter Choi, so yeah. Yes, Peter Choi died recently. Yes, <laughs> age ninety-eight. Yes, yes, yes. But、uh, yes, all of them served. Peter Choi in the artillery. When、yeah. you're laying your wreath today, and、uh, you're you're here, what do you think about? Yeah, it's a、uh, very touching, you know. 
And that was Joseph Pao Chi Leung of the Hong Kong Adventure Corps at the Garden of Remembrance in City Hall, commemorating the 80th anniversary of the start of the Battle of Hong Kong on the 8th of December 1941. Hong History website Gwulo.com provides tens of thousands of pages of photographs and information and is a great resource for researchers. Each year, its founder, David Bellis, provides day-by-day accounts from war diaries so that you can read what it was like for civilians or soldiers here at the Battle of Hong Kong 80 years ago. I had a chat earlier with David Bellis of Gwulo.com. Now, you've been doing war diaries for a number of years for your readers. So what's special about the 80th anniversary? The 80th anniversary, well, I wouldn't say anything special about the, the year, the 80. To me, every year is a, is a new start. It's a new audience. Um, new people get in touch with us. New people send new material to us. So I kind of treat it more as a, as a year by year. Um, one of the sad things, of course, is that as we've gone uh, 80 years on... The people who experienced this firsthand are, are leaving us. So there's less and less of those people to, to talk to. I think that's one of the reasons the, the diaries are very important, to preserve those first-hand experiences. So what can people read this December? Well, December is probably the, the most dramatic period because it covers the, the fighting, of course. So you've got a wide variety of experiences. You'll, you'll get messages from people who are very concerned about their family and looking after their children, you know, very much uh, just getting through events safely. You've got other people who are involved with the fighting. We've had a, a new diary, which I'm just in the process of adding at the moment, and that's from Colin McEwen. And he was in Z Force, which was to do with uh, sort of sabotage behind enemy lines. So that's quite different as well. So all sorts of different views. Oh, yes. Colin McEwen is a, a very interesting man, as you said, part of Z-Force. Sabotage. Mm. With his sabotage, was he involved in scuttling ships? Yes. Um, amazingly, he was. One of the, the tasks they had was to go over to a, a ship, I think, that had been hit but not sunk, and the Japanese were using it. So Colin and, and a colleague rowed out into the harbour, very worried about the phosphorescence they were stirring up as they rowed, thinking that someone was going to see it. But they got there and they attached limpet mines to the, the hull of the ship and then the ship was sunk. So that's Colin McEwan's diary. Um, so you've had a variety of diaries over the years. Some of them are uh, prisoners of war. Others, as you say, are civilians caught up uh, in the Battle of Hong Kong. Um, where do you get your diaries from? We're very fortunate that as, as people read through and subscribe, they'll get in touch with us and they'll say, you know, we, we've got something that a, a parent wrote or, or one of my relatives wrote and would you be interested to have it? And of course we always say yes, please. So you must have, over that 17 days from December the 8th till the surrender on December the 25th, and of course you've got others that take you through the occupation, often in, in prisoner of war camps, but uh, you must have got very familiar then with the day-by-day -day events of the Battle of Hong Kong. Yes, but it's such a dramatic story. And this is the 11th time we've run through the cycle. And as I say, each year we're adding to it. So each year I, I subscribe again and I, I still find it fascinating as each day's uh, diary comes in. So you basically type it out for the readers? Again, we get help. Thank goodness <laughs> I couldn't manage all this work myself. We've got about almost 40 diaries now, so that's an awful lot of typing. Um, so people 
have, in most cases, given us text files, and then that gets loaded up onto the website. Once or twice it's come through scanned, and then again I've asked for volunteers to help do their transcription, do all typing up, and then that goes onto the website. So people can read this in the English language on, on the history website, grulo.com. Now, is it that relatives sometimes, as you say, many of these people have sadly died, those that survived the war and then went on for decades. Um, you've interviewed people who were over 100 years old, but uh, including in recent years Barbara Anslow, who's now died. But uh, in terms of the, the diaries themselves, are people finding them sort of in attics or in people's uh, belongings that perhaps they didn't even know about? Yes, I think that does happen. I think the, uh, the audience for the diaries covers several different groups. A lot of people are maybe new to Hong Kong, but you know, fascinated with the wartime history. But the, the most valuable group, the group I really encourage, are the, are the family members. So people who had parents or aunts or uncles who were in camp, and quite often we'll hear that they never talked about it. And so um, by following through the diaries, there's a chance to, to hear some of the stories and get a better understanding of why, sometimes why people behaved as they did. Now, I think the, the events of the war obviously changed, changed some people and following through these diaries can, can really help get a better understanding of, of, of why people's personalities have come like they did. Oh yes, they would have been under enormous mental strain during that period, often not knowing what was happening probably with other family members. Do you also find that, uh, you know, is it people, when, when you're looking through these diaries, of course I hadn't even thought of that, is this all in handwriting? Uh, mixture, so if it's the original one, yes. The, one of the latest diaries that we've had added is a very small one, just a few pages, and it's in very, it's in pencil written in pencil, but it belonged to a lady who was known as the blind lady of, of Stanley Camp. And so there's you know, the question, well, who wrote this? Did somebody help her? Or So there, there are mysteries about the diaries as well. Do you write a diary? I don't. <laughs> I did when I was a, a kid. I found them a little while back and they <laughs> were not very exciting reading. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's interesting. I think more, would you say that more people wrote in that generation? Yes, I think there was just the habit of letter writing you didn't have the email and things that we have today and we've talked about it with with photos isn't it you know one of the beauties of the old photos is that they last and we're going to lose so much of the the material that's just on our smartphones and it's the same with letters letters and diaries have lasted but i wonder if our whatsapps and emails and all those things if they'll still be here in five years time or eight years let alone 80 now if people want to access your war diaries on grulo.com where do they need to go so probably easiest is to go to Google and type in Grulo, G-W-U-L-O, 80 years ago. And that'll take you to today's diary entries so you can get a feel for what they're like. And you'll find a link there to subscribe. So if you hit subscribe, type in your email address. Then at 6 a.m. every morning, you'll get the day's diary entries emailed to you. The big news on the 11th of December 1941 was the British retreat from Kowloon to Hong Kong Island. The Zeiglers were American missionaries in Kowloon with their children. Laura Zeigler, the mother, writes, One of the men had been out to try to get some news, because the radio and telephone were out of order. He came back about 5pm with the news that the British were retreating and they were evacuating Kowloon, and that the last boat would leave for the Hong Kong side in about 25 minutes. If we wanted to escape capture by the Japanese, we must leave at once. Everybody went up to their rooms, gathered a few belongings and rushed to the ferry landing about nine blocks away. There'd been no shooting for several hours, and all was strangely empty and quiet as we hurried along. We crossed in safety, but the boat that left a few minutes after ours was not as lucky. 
The Japanese soldiers arrived before it got far enough away from the wharf and shot at him, and several people were wounded. The same events appear in the diary of Harry Ching, editor of the SCMP. He writes from his home in Happy Valley. The position on the mainland has become hopeless. Kowloon has had to be abandoned. The withdrawal commenced tonight with an impressive artillery chorus providing background music. The telephone connection between island and mainland remains unbroken. Our friends phoned us urgently and in whispers. Kowloon has become a no-man's land. Bands of men, some in cars with flags flying, are appearing everywhere and boldly entering and ransacking the homes. In the foreign residential districts, a few brave spirits armed with shotguns have tried to organise a resistance and drive the marauders off with mixed results. The next day, the 12th of December, we turn to Colin McEwan's diary, he writes. Following a brief halt at the Jewish club, where, owing to Ty's influence, a small amount of beer was obtained, we moved to upper levels to find everything in complete darkness. From our selected observation post, a flat overlooking Victoria and the harbour, we could hear occasional bursts of firing in the streets, but otherwise everything was quiet when suddenly there was a short burst of machine gun fire and at the Western Bund a terrific deafening explosion. A terrifying, magnificent pinkish-purple flame leapt up momentarily, illuminating the waterfront. There had been intermittent shelling, and my guess was that a Japanese shell had hit a dump of ammo. Mike, however, stuck to his theory, later proved correct, that it was a ship of some kind which had been blown up by our fire. The following morning we learned the reason. A harbour launch, loaded with explosive from Green Island, had arrived in some time ahead of the fixed schedule. A machine gun post had fired on the boat, causing the explosion and the resultant annihilation of the ship and crew. David Bellis there of Gwulo.com, providing a couple of extracts from the war diaries that you can see as day-by-day accounts on his Hong Kong history website. To access those diaries, just type into Google Gwulo, so G-W-U-L-O, and then 80 years ago. My final segment today moves away from the 80th anniversary of the Battle of Hong Kong and to an event that happened this week for the first time in more than 70 years. The bell in the clock tower of the old Chim Sa Choi railway terminus has rung for the first time in 71 years and this week the Leisure and Cultural Services Department organised the event to commemorate the first time the bell in the historic landmark chimed 100 years ago in 1921. This is Radio 3 news reporter Jimmy Choi heading off to the clock tower to report on the event this week. Sam, Yi, Yan. The clock tower broke its silence at 6pm for the first time in 71 years. Hundreds of people witnessed the historical moment near the Chim Sa Choi promenade. The landmark in Chim Sa Choi was built in 1915 as part of the former Kowloon terminus of the Kowloon Canton Railway. The terminus was demolished in 1978, leaving behind only the clock tower, which was declared a monument in 1990. The bell in the clock tower started reporting time with its chime in 1921, exactly 100 years ago. But in 1950, the bell and the four clocks in the tower went out of synchronization, and the bell has stopped ringing since then. And to mark the centenary of the bell, the Leisure and Cultural Services Department thought it would be a good idea to let people relive the history of the clock tower and the bell. So they started looking for help from experts and a bell manufacturer in the UK. While they couldn't manage to repair the original bell, which now sits at the very bottom of the tower, they did find a comparable historical bell that produces a similar chime. 
Amy Ho is a senior manager from the Leisure and Cultural Services Department. We have the original bell placed on the ground floor of the clock tower, but we are not reviving a, a fake one or just uh, doing something like synthesizer. The bell foundry in UK, they are finding the job books when they have cast many bells. Some of them are identical with the same tune. What we do mind is the tune and the sound of the bell and the resonance to produce a chime. The bell will ring every hour, every day. The Cultural Centre will also launch a series of activities and an exhibition this month to showcase the history and architecture of the clock tower. My thanks to RTHK reporter Jimmy Choi there. Next week, I'll be looking at a new book from publishers Blacksmith Books. Along the southern boundary is the account of former Marine Police officer Les Bird about manning the territory's southern sea border as tens of thousands of Vietnamese boat people made the perilous, often thousand-mile journey by sea to come to seek sanctuary in Hong Kong in the aftermath of the Vietnam War, so from the mid-70s onwards. Les Bird has collaborated with several other former Marine Police colleagues using their on-the-job photographs, and in the case of a couple of them, the photographs are outstanding, showing the junks, riverboats, children and mothers as they left everything they knew behind and often came just in the clothes they were standing in. I'll also be hearing from former refugees who the author has been communicating with during this project. While many of the boats were ramshackle and flimsy vessels, at the end of the 1970s, large freighters were used by people smugglers to move thousands of Vietnamese at a time. The first to arrive in Hong Kong in late 1978 was the freighter the Huy Phong. John Turner was Marine Police Deputy Commander at the time and one of the first officers to arrive at the Huy Phong in December 1978 off the Potoy Islands. So here's just a taster ahead of next week of John Turner talking from his home in England. Well, I was, I was in the Marine District Police off and on throughout my career. That was for 30 years. I, I wasn't a mariner, but I was in Marine uh, and dealing with uh, Vietnamese refugees. And the problem started in, in the mid-70s. We call them the, bo- the boat people. Very, very tragic conditions. They were coming up hundreds in, in small boats all the way up from Vietnam, all the way up to, to Hong Kong. They thought they would be safe in Hong Kong, but obviously in the South China Sea, uh, it could be very dangerous. And there were, there were many, many drowned on, on the way up in small boats. Marine police were, were picking up uh, the, the small boats contents with with you know women and children and getting getting them ashore that that went on till the late the late 70s when some they were taiwan businessmen singapore businessmen they had an idea they could make a lot of money out of the refugee influx leaving leaving vietnam by uh, getting larger old freighters they bought up several old freighters, about 3,000 tonnes each, that were really left for scrap. That's when I got involved with the, Wei, the Weifong. The Weifong was the first of these uh, larger freighters uh, to try and make it up to, to Hong Kong. It came a few days before Christmas in December 78. It took about an hour to get out to where the Weifong was at, at anchor just off, off Hong Kong, just on the border of Hong Kong waters. We, we went alongside. I, I wasn't sure what we were going to find. We, 
went straight up to the bridge, got hold of the captain, and the next step was to, to open the hatches and look into the hold. On board were 2,700 approximately men, women, and, and children. Five babies had been born on the way up from, <sighs> from, uh, from Vietnam. Uh, their condition was absolutely terrible, absolutely shocking. The stench was uh, in, indescribable. Uh, you know, I, I was horrified, horrified to see people in such a such a poor condition. They obviously ne- needed help. Myself and, and the Chinese chief inspector, we were equally equally shocked. They'd been travelling for nearly two weeks from Vietnam waters. John Turner, one of the former Marine Police contributors to author Les Birds Along the Southern Boundary, which you'll hear more about next week. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.